0: All right, y'all, this morning we are heading back to Romans 8, Romans 8, so go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's go to Romans 8. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. If you're using your app, awesome. Open it. <laughs> go over to Romans 8. Um, if you've got your, uh, your, your journaling Bible, open it up, um, hoping that you are enjoying that, writing in that, taking notes in that. Um, so to introduce this, um, I've told you guys before, I mean, I've told this story numerous times. Um, you know, early on in the church, uh, you know, we get a lot of visitors, a lot of people coming in excited about what's happening at Trailhead and, and, and excited about all the energy, right? Especially in the beginning, man. Uh, when we first launched, I think the median age of the church was like 28, man. We were just young and vibrant, and it was chaotic, and it was beautiful. Um, and um, uh, there was an older woman who came and attended for a while, and one day she grabbed me after service, and she was like, Steve, I just love the atmosphere of this place. I love that you're preaching the gospel, but I'm kind of wondering when you're going to get past the gospel, right? When are you going to, man, when are you going to get to the meat of obedience, right? When are you going to start talking about, about the need for obedience? Because, you know, pastor, there's, there's a whole lot of sinning going on around here. There's a whole lot of sinning, and, and, and I think it might be time for you to strike the fear of God into their hearts. I think it's time to, to get into rules, right? just can't have people sinning willy-nilly all the time. Uh, we need to get past grace, right? That's great that you talk about it, but but when are you going to get down to the, to the brass tacks of it's time to get, get serious about growing with God and, and, and obeying some rules? That complaint um, struck me at the time, um, and what I have found is that it, it has become a recurring theme um, over the years. It's, it's become somewhat predictable. I I am open to a number of criticisms, which any leader is. Uh, anybody who says anything we're saying is going to be open to criticism, because uh, invariably it, it means you're drawing some lines that people are going to find themselves on the other side of at times, and and that's healthy and good. And I think um, the the conversations can be good, right? Uh, but one thing I've noticed is is that the folks that are coming to me and saying, "Man, when are you going to talk more about rules?" They're almost never asking for themselves. You know what I'm saying? People aren't showing up and saying, I'm having a really hard time living the Christian life. Would you talk to me more about law? Would you talk to me more about rules? Almost invariably, they're looking around and saying, you need to do something to fix those people. You need to do something because they're not doing what I'm doing, right? Uh, Now, I'm going to be careful here because I think people can bring this objection from two places. One is a place of pride, spiritual pride, And you can tell when they're coming from a place of spiritual pride, because things really turn ugly, when you don't give their success the honor they think it deserves, when you actually confront their pride instead of complimenting their religious resume. Things tend to get really ugly pretty fast. There are others who are coming with this concern out of a genuine place of fear and a genuine place of of just being uneasy. They they. They, they feel off balance. Um, things feel too gray, too sloppy. Like, like, what does it even mean to move forward? And how do we know? And, and, and often their fear is for other people, but it's fear for them. Like, man, they're going to take the bad path. They're, they're going to make bad choices. And, and subtly, what they're saying to me is, I need you to fix them. I need you to be more clear so, so that they won't make these bad choices that they won't do these, these bad things. And, and I want you to hear this, man. If that's your concern, if your heart is, if, if, you know, if this is your question, I'm not getting after you. I'm not, I'm not downing on you this morning for having that concern. Um, I get it. Um, and I hope this morning to be able to speak to that fear in a way that comforts it. But here's the thing. I, as, a, as somebody who, who preaches the Word and somebody who, who teaches the Gospel, um. I'm not surprised that this is a recurring theme because honestly, it was a recurring theme in Paul's life too. We saw this already in the letter multiple times. You know, it's like, he, he's like, when he voices his critics' voice, it's, it's, what are you saying? Should we just keep sinning so that grace may abound? It's grace, 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 grace. You're gonna end up with a bunch of sinners all the time, right? If, if all there is is grace, are you just saying that we keep sinning so that there can be more grace? And of course, that's not what he's saying. He corrects that throughout his letter But here's the thing, I'm teaching his letter, and as a result, if I'm teaching it accurately, I believe I will also open myself up to the same charge at times, um, because it is grace. And it's so unexpected, and it's so disarming, and it's so counterintuitive, it's so different than anything we expect. Um, It it, it just is different. Now, here's the thing, I'm going to be really, really clear with you guys, all right? I'm going to be just totally up front. God wants us to change. Okay, God wants you to stop sinning. God, God wants us to live lives of repentance because He wants us to be free, free from sin and free in His holiness and free to be what we are created to be, free in His glory, right? He, he wants to free us from sin. But I want to be just as clear about this. He's going to do that work through grace. What grace started, only grace Can finish all right let's take a look at our passage let's take a look at romans 8 i'm going to start in verse 8 we're going to be focusing primarily on verses 12 through 14 but uh, i'm going to start in verse 8 and just read through 17 so starting in verse 8 those who are in the flesh cannot please god you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in that if in fact the spirit of god dwells in you anyone who does not have the spirit of christ does not belong to him But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, last week, uh, we saw the culmination of that first paragraph. Last week, we've been looking for the last four weeks, five weeks, I don't even remember, uh, at the opening of Romans 8, and, and at the opening, we talked about how this is the statement of the Father's blessing, the proclamation of the Father's blessing, which is, in, in theological terms, justification, right? The, the Father's blessing is that we get to be justified. We get to be declared right, even though we don't deserve it. Even though we're not justified based on our works, based on our merit, based on our performance, we still get to receive justification as a gift of grace, right? There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ Jesus took our condemnation for us. Our sin was condemned, but it was condemned in Him, not in us. Our sin was imputed to Him and He died as our substitute and our place, as our hero, paying the price fully on our behalf. And when He died our death, He removed our guilt and dying our death, He he removed the the condemnation that was our due. And then when He rose again, He he won a victory of life for us into which we could enter, right? He, He died for our sins, He rose for our life. And as a result, God not only gives us mercy, we now stand in grace, right? He gives us mercy, we do not get what we deserve, Christ got it on our behalf, We now stand in grace. We stand in a position of of undeserved, unearned favor and love with God. That is your standing, not not your your occasional experience, right? Not a gesture from God, but God's posture toward you, grace, right? You stand in a position of unlimited merit, unlimited love, right, right? Grace. And this leads to the greatest blessing of justification. We looked at this last week, which is the resurrection of the body. Because you have been justified and because you now stand in grace, your full redemption is absolutely guaranteed. In the same way Christ has been raised from the dead, you will be raised. And when you are raised, you'll be given a glorified body just like Christ's, which is going to be the greatest blessing you've ever imagined. I just again, you're going to have. In that experience, the gift that frees you into every other gift. You will have the removal of your disordered desires. You will have the removal of the sin nature of, of the flesh, and you will be able, you will be filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, expressing love to the Spirit. You will be able to follow every desire of your heart, every curious impulse of your mind, every every thought of creativity or productivity, every impulse toward rest, you will be able to follow and fulfill the desires because you will not have disordered desires. You will be fully aligned from the source of your desires through the fruit of your behavior to the glory of God and to the good that God created you to experience. Believer in Christ, that's your future. That is the guaranteed promise of God as sure to you as Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the blessing of the Father, and it's already yours. Not yet experienced, but already yours, okay? Paul then shifts in verse uh, 12, so then, so then, looks back thinking, man, okay, yeah, got the blessing of the Father, right? So then, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you an implication. Brothers, we are debtors. Now, what does that mean to be a debtor? And how do we pay this debt? That's the question we're going to wrestle with this morning. What does it mean to be a debtor to God on behalf of grace, and what does it mean to actually pay that debt? I want to remind you of uh, the diagram that I drew last week. Because I think it's a helpful visual to help us. I'm going to flip this before I get it too close over there. Oh, look at that. Technology. All right, look at that. Old school technology. All right. All right, I want to remind you of the, uh, the diagram that I drew last week. Technology. All right, there we go. Um, I want to remind you that, that, that uh, I, I gave you this image as a way to visualize the truths that Paul has been teaching over the first part of Romans 8. These two boxes do not represent our performance before God or our performance to God. They represent our position before God. The, these things do not represent um, our behavior but how God sees us and relates to us based on what He has declared over us, right? We were in the flesh. Let me remind you. So, before you became a believer, you were in the flesh. Every person is born in the flesh, right? And, and, and flesh is just short-term, Paul's short-term way to describe our separation from God. It's not, it's not a knock on our fleshly physical bodies, Because Jesus was physical and fleshly too in that sense, right? He had a physical body and He was raised a physical being. We will be fleshly creatures in that sense throughout eternity. What He means here is only flesh, right? We died spiritually, we're separated from God, and all we're left is our animal instinct. All we're left with is the physical animal part of our being trying to find the fullness of life in a world without God, right? So if you're in the flesh, you are by nature walking in the realm of death. Now, remember, death isn't the cessation of being, it is separation, right? In the day that Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned against God, they were separated from God. They spiritually died. They were separated from the source of life. And then later, as a result of that, they experienced physical death. They didn't cease to exist. Their spiritual nature was separated from their, spirit, uh, their physical nature, right? And, and as a result, they, that separation led to um, physical death. Okay? We were created in the image of God. You've never met a person who is not an eternal being because God is eternal, and being created in the image of God means that we will carry that throughout eternity. The challenge, though, is that we are born in death. We're born separated from God, and that means everything we do in this realm operates from death to death. Right? We start in separation from God, and anything we do leads to greater separation because of our disordered desires. We have desires for good things, that's that small F, the flesh there is, is the internal desires, right? We desire good things, but we just we de- chase the wrong things to get there. I want security, so I try to find a job. I, I want to feel important, so I buy things that make me look fancy. I want to I feel worthy of love, so I pursue um, people's attention, right? I look to things God created instead of the God who created them to meet these deep desires, and as a result, whatever I do, whether it is a self-indulgent act of licentiousness or a self-righteous act of moral improvement. It doesn't matter. Whatever I do in this realm works from death to death, right? It, It leads from separation to greater separation. Whether I fail at it or accomplish it, it doesn't matter. Why? Because I cannot get myself out of this box, I cannot change my position in this posture, right? Now, God gave us the law in this realm, not to fix us, not to deliver us, but to make us aware of how desperate our need is. The law was given to show us our sin and to increase it. That's what Paul's revealed in the book of Romans. Romans. Right? The law came in, the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments. So, so God's like, look, you, you want to fix your way out of this? Here, I'll give you the perfect tool. And what did we do? <laughs> we turned it into a weapon, a weapon of self-righteousness. See, the law has the ability to speak to the behavior, but it has no ability to address the desires it cannot change the desires of the heart it can simply change the way those desires are manifest so it can come along like a pruning shear and change the fruit but it can't change the rotten root so the law comes in and god gave it to show us our desperate need by showing us our sin and actually increasing that sin and as a result all we have in this realm is sin that's all we have now sin in this term It is morally repugnant, but that's not what we're focusing on. The word Paul uses means to miss the mark. It means no matter how carefully we aim, our disordered desires lead us to shoot at the wrong targets. You will never end at the fullness and the flourishing of life. You will never end where you're really wanting to go. You will never end by focusing on the glory of God or the good of humans because you're so obsessively self-centered because of your sin that you'll never get past that. The black hole of your self-centered need um, will put a gravitational force on every behavior it changes the motivation so everything that's in here is trapped in here now by a gift of grace we're able to move from here to here right because jesus came and died for our sins took our place was our substitute in death and rose again on our behalf the Father sent the Son on mission, the Son accomplished the mission by dying and rising again, and when we believe in Jesus and we receive that gift of grace by believing the gospel, we are indwelt by the Spirit, and we are now in the Spirit. This is a fundamentally different way to stand before God. doesn't mean our behaviors changed. That's not the focus. The focus is our position has changed. We are now in the Spirit. We're no longer in the realm of the flesh. We are in the realm of the Spirit, and as a result, we work from life. We're now connected to God, the source of life. Right? And we work from life to life. Right? So so as we grow in, in in that connection with God, in that humble dependence on God, in that experience of God's presence, it awakens within us a deeper motivation, a deeper desire to experience more. And we work from life to life, from connection to greater connection. Okay? And and, and that's because we're operating not with law, but with grace. We're no longer simply trimming the outward manifestations of the behavior. Grace comes to bear on the inward motivations. Love does in us what law could never do. It actually meets our deepest needs for security, for rest, for significance, for worthiness of love, right? So we stand in the realm of grace. And no matter what we do, this is our standing. You didn't get in here by earning it. You're not going to lose it by not earning it, right? You stand in grace. That's the whole nature of grace. It is undeserved. You didn't didn't win it. You're not going to lose it. You didn't earn it. You can't default on it. And as a result, this realm is is, um, characterized by righteousness. First of all, the, the imputed righteousness of Christ. I am covered in the act of obedience of Jesus. When God looks at me, he he sees the, the glowing brilliance of Christ's obedience. But more than that, as I experience the imputed righteousness of Christ, I grow into the imputed righteousness of Christ. I become more righteous. I become more like Jesus. This is a realm where I'm working from life to life, where I am experiencing grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, and as a result, I am standing in his righteousness and becoming more righteous. Okay? That's our standing no matter what our behavior, because it's not dependent on our behavior. It never was. We didn't get here by doing the right things. We're not going to lose here by doing the wrong things. Y'all with me so far? Okay. Now, one thing we imported with us was the small f. We now have a new standing before God, but we still have the disordered desires of our hearts. We're no longer in the flesh… But the flesh is still in us. It's not my position before God, but it is a restless motivation that still wrestles to take control of the motivations of my heart. Um, And so, as a result of that, this creates an internal conflict between the Spirit and the flesh, because I have the Spirit in me, those who are in the Spirit have the Spirit in them, you are indwelt by the Spirit, every believer is, you have within you two competing sources to take control of your motivations, right? And this creates an internal conflict, right? And, and this is what Romans 7 described, right? I have within me this desire to live to the glory of God, to experience the fullness of God's presence, to be what I was created to be in God's glory, but I also see a different law at work in the members of my body, I see different impulses, I see insecurity and fear, I see jealousy and lust, I see see anger and and defensiveness, I see see, uh, prideful condemnation of others and and prideful self-justification of self, these things are just at work within me, these disordered desires are still present and as a result we struggle, we are tempted, we stumble and we fail. We know God wants us to be like Jesus. We know God wants us to be holy. He wants us not just to have the imputed righteousness of Christ. He wants us to be righteous ourselves. We know this. We just can't seem to get there. So this is the critical question. What do we do with this struggle? What do we do with that failure? What do we do with with this difficulty? Because as Paul says, we are debtors. We've received the incredible gift of grace. And we are debtors to that grace. And I think each one of us who have received that grace would say, yes, I want to walk in a manner worthy of that grace. The question is, how? How do I get there? What do I do with this internal conflict? What, what do I do when I find that even my good works are motivated by evil motives? Even my attempts to look religious and be good are often motivated by this internal need to be seen as important or seen as valuable or seen as successful or, or seen as worthy of love. What do I do when I find that, that the motives below the motives below the motives, there, it goes so deep? How do we walk in a manner worthy of the gift? All right, take a look at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. I love how you just pivot right in the middle, right? We're debtors. He doesn't even finish the thought. <laughs> what are we debtors to? Yeah, you, you know, right? We're debtors to grace. We're debtors to God. We're, we're debtors to the Spirit, right? But he doesn't even finish the thought. He's like, yeah, we're debtors, but not to the flesh. Let's be clear right? We owe nothing to this realm. We owe nothing to to what, what God has delivered us from, right? We are not to live according to the flesh, right? Now, what's clear in verse 12 is that he has shifted from talking about our position before God. We're now talking about our behavior before God. Right? We were talking about our position, now he's, he's shifting, and he's talking about how we live our lives, not the way we stand before God, which is unchanged, but how we actually live that out, which does change, right? What does it mean to, to live it out, right? Uh, we are debtors, not to the flesh, not to, not to follow our disordered desires, right? We are debtors to live out the gift we've been given. Verse 13 he goes on and he shares a universal principle that speaks into this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is, this is the universal principle of reaping and sowing, right? Uh, any farmer knows this. If you put a seed in the ground, it determines what plant will come up, right? It doesn't even matter. You might be mistaken, right? When, when Lauren was planting her white garden out back she mixed up some of the seeds, and, and the seeds determine the plant, not the intentions. You know what I'm saying? The seed you put in the ground, and so, yeah, some of the flowers came up red, and they were beautiful. It just wasn't a white garden, right? But, but that's the universal principle. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap death, no matter what. That seed always produces that fruit. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap life. The seed determines the fruit, right? If you live according to the flesh, you'll end up with death because that's what the flesh does. Now, now be really careful with this because first it deceives and then it destroys. There is a season in which when you are sowing to the flesh, it doesn't feel like you're reaping death always. There's a short-term pleasure. There's a short-term payoff. There's a short-term season of deception before the full impact of the fruit is experienced, okay? Okay. So it is deceptive. That's the power of the flesh. Um, but it always results in the same thing. On the other hand, if you live by the Spirit, even if it leads to short-term discomfort, it will always lead to life. Right? So if we, if we sow to the Spirit, to, to obedience and to following uh, the Lord and, 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 and disciplining our hearts to respond to the love of God, there may be short-term discomfort. In fact, I guarantee you there is. But it will lead to the fruit of life. Um, so what we're talking about here is really the setting of your internal GPS. How, how do you get to where you want to go? We're all trying to get to the same thing, the fullness and flourishing of life. Now, we may define it in different ways. Some of us are creative. Some of us are, are engineers. Some of us are, are, are more security-oriented. Security some of us are more success-oriented. Some of us um, are, are, are just desperate to be liked. Um, how you define the goal is going to change from person to person, But we're all trying to get to the same place. Those are just different facets on the same diamond. We're all trying to get to the fullness and flourishing of life. We just look at it from slightly different angles. The GPS, that internal GPS, is the setting we we adjust to get us there. What controls your GPS? What's the true north? What's the magnetic pole that ultimately leads your choices um, and to your priorities of, of how to order your life, to make your choices, how to spend your money, what career to pursue, what friendships to, to develop, how to invest your time, whether or not to get up early on daylight savings, to, to actually gather with the people of God, right? Those are all choices we make that are, that are going to be influenced by an internal GPS that ultimately we're hoping will lead us to the fullness and flourishing of life. Now, remember the rule what you sow is what you reap. That's a universal principle. That's working here. So, so, how does this speak into this idea that we are obligated, that we are debtors? All right, it's worth being careful here because I, I've already mentioned this, but I, I just want to be clear: the flesh doesn't play fair. The flesh operates through deceit. Always, which means when you're walking in the flesh, you're not going to know you're walking in the flesh. At least not at first. Sometimes it's going to trick you to the point that you literally don't know it. Other times it's going to seduce you so that you trick yourself, so that you don't see what you actually know to be true. You just don't want it to be true, so you just choose not to see it as true, right? So you respond to the seduction. Sometimes we're purely deceived, sometimes we're simply seduced, but the flesh doesn't play fair. It wants to take control of the internal GPS, and its greatest power to do so is deception. Because if it actually showed you where it was leading you, you would never want to go. So instead, it creates illusions. It makes promises it can never keep. It creates imaginary images that ultimately cannot deliver on what they promise. It makes something that isn't life look like life. It makes rebellion against God look like life apart from God, or sometimes even life with God. And ultimately, what it's selling is independence from God. That's what the flesh wants more than anything. It's for you to be separated from God, for you to be independent of God, to have you not responding to God, right? It doesn't care if you're still around God as long as you're not humbly responding to God. The goal of the flesh is that you want to become a little God in competition with God, independent from God, that you will believe the very first lie in the garden, that you too can be like God. That's the flesh's goal. Now, the way it works its way out, y'all, it's worth taking a look at this. Um, The flesh is at work right now. (laughs) It never rests. And its goal is to trick you. And when it tricks you, it wants to keep tricking you. And we call that uh, a lot of people will call that the slippery slope. You guys ever heard of, be- beware of the slippery slope, right? Because this, the, the whole idea of the slippery slope is that if you believe that one thing, it's going to trick you into believing the next thing, and it's going to trick you into believing the next thing, and pretty soon you're just going to slide on down the slippery slope, right, into whatever, whatever ruin or degradation or bad thing is, is at the bottom, right? So beware of the, of the, the slippery slope, and... and um, I absolutely believe the slippery slope is real. I just believe there's two of them. And that's the problem, is that we're always afraid of one of them, and we become completely unaware of the other. We have a way of seeing the slippery slope we don't want while we're sliding down the one we love. There's a slippery slope on both sides of the path of righteousness. And you're going to be tempted toward one or the other, not based on your strengths, but based on your weakness. Because the flesh is always at work, not in your strengths, but in your weaknesses. And it's going to deceive you into thinking that your weakness is your strength. It's going to deceive you into thinking that you can be independent this way. As long as you're avoiding the problem over there, you're safe. And the farther you get away from that problem over there, and while you're backing down this slippery slope, yeah, you're getting farther from that one. But you're also getting farther away from the path of, of humble dependence and righteousness. So I, I've used this paradigm before, um, and I'll, I'll use it again this morning. It's, it's somewhat helpful. It's, it's, it's a little simplistic uh, because it is a, a spectrum. Um, but rule keepers and rule breakers. Okay, I'm going to work with that this morning. And again, it is a spectrum because even rule keepers are rule breakers in some situations. And rule breakers are rule keepers in other situations, okay? So I get it. It's, it's more complex than that. But I do believe that we have general natural inclinations toward one or, or the other, right? So let's first of all talk about the rule breakers. The rule breakers, think about it like this. Um, if, you're, if you're a cow, not insulting you, just a metaphor, you're a cow and you're in, you're in a pasture and there's a fence around the pasture, okay? The rule keepers think The fullness and flourishing of life is inside the fence. And in fact, the fence itself is really scary because it gets close to the not life. And so my goal is to stay in the very center of the pasture. And I'm going to stay right here. I'm going to obey the rules because when I do, that's going to be good for me, right? And and look at all those stupid people over by the fence. Get away from the fence, people, right? Rule breakers, on the other hand, are constantly by the fence because they're convinced that the fullness and flourishing of life is just on the other side right it's on the other side not over here like there's a reason there's a rule here and it's to keep me away from something good and so you're always just kind of pushing on it and leaning on it sticking your head out you know chewing on the grass right outside it's like how close can I get without actually going over and then occasionally the fence gives way and you're like well I'll just wander around a little bit right it's cool look at the good grass and I can go back whoo, I'm safe, right? And, and so you know where you can break the rules, and you know where you can get out. Man, that grass tasted good, right? So you got rule keepers, you got rule breakers, and I know it's an oversimplification, uh, but I think it's helpful. Here's the thing with rule breakers. Rule breakers believe that the fullness and flourishing of life is going to come um, by ultimately indulging desires. Now, those desires aren't just, like, we think immediately of fleshly desires like, like lust, yeah, that, that, that's included, but it's more than that. It can be desires for security, desires for significance, um, desires to be worthy of love, like, 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 you know, having enough followers on Twitter so that I can feel like, yeah, people like me, right? That, that it can be all these things. But what's going to end up happening is over time, rule breakers are going to um, step into places, into behaviors, into patterns they know God doesn't want them to. Right? God gave us good gifts and then he gave us boundaries for those gifts. And he said, this is where you're going to receive the good of those gifts. And what we do is we step outside of those boundaries we take those gifts and we're like, yeah, I think it's going to be better over here. I think it's going to be better like this. I think it's going to be better in a way that, yeah, maybe this isn't the way God designed it, but I'm, you know, it's a good gift and this is where I want to go with it. Right? And so what ends up happening is you end up giving yourself over to the flesh through a path of self-indulgence. And often, the rationale behind it goes like this. I'm already forgiven, so why struggle? I stand in grace, so why not sin? There's no danger, right? Steve already showed me. I'm secure, so I'll just sin, right? I'm already forgiven, That's not like I'm, you know, and then pretty soon that shifts from just a momentary excuse of, yeah, I know there's grace to a little bit more of a posture of self-justification. Like, you know, I got to be true to myself. This is, I just have to be true to myself, right? This is, this is, it's so important for me to have integrity, And I can't have integrity if I'm not being true to my true desires, if I'm not fulfilling my genuine genuine self, right? And then that leads to this next level of of self-justification. Surely God wants us to be happy. Would God have given me a desire He didn't intend me to fulfill? Surely not. Not. If I'm going to have integrity, if I'm going to be true to myself, if I am going to to live a genuine and full life, I have to be true to myself. See, this path assumes that God either doesn't really care about the boundaries that He has set up, or He didn't really mean what He said, right? Right? So, here's the thing is, is when we're sliding down that slippery slope, we stop seeing disordered desires as disordered. We start thinking of them as healthy, good, natural, and needed, right? Pretty soon, we're sliding down that slippery slope. They're just desires that have a right to be fulfilled because if, if I didn't have those desires… I wouldn't want to do it and and since i want to that clearly means it's important right we feel justified to our sin and we become protective of other people's sins they're just being true to themselves they're just living out their truth they're just living their life they're just following their path they're they're just they're just right and pretty soon we find ourselves in a position where where we kind of fancy ourselves as more merciful than god yeah i know the bible says bad things about that sin but you know I just love people. I, I, I'm just you know I'm just not a judge. I don't think we should judge, and honestly, I kind of don't think God would either. I, I might even find yourself saying things like, I, "I don't think I could believe in a God that." I don't think I believe in a God that judges that. I don't think I believe in a God that rejects that. I don't think I believe in a God that says those things. And pretty soon, what are we doing? We're not believing in the God who created us in His image. We're recreating God in our own image. We're defining God by the boundaries of our disordered desires instead of exposing our disordered desires to the God who created them. Now, it's a slippery slope that will lead to self-destruction. And it's dangerous. Paul said to Timothy that there are many people who have made a shipwreck of their faith by violating their conscience. By habitually, progressively violating the Spirit's work in their conscience, they end up making a shipwreck of their lives and of their faith. This is the path of self-deception that leads to death. It will not lead to life. It'll deceive you into thinking it will, but... That's the deception. First deception, then destruction. And so what we end up saying when we're sliding down that path is, yeah, I'm obligated to do what? To be true to myself. There's another group, though. There's another slippery slope, and that slippery slope is for the rule keepers. See, they give themselves over to their disordered desires just as much. They just don't see it as easily because their indulgence in disordered desires aren't as morally obvious instead of indulging in clearly sinful behaviors clearly stepping outside of God's design for his gifts they're manipulating God's good gifts in a way he never intended them to be manipulated instead of powering down and surrendering to the flesh they power up and they try to use the tools of the flesh to accomplish spiritual ends what they do is they grab the law from the realm of the flesh and they try to import it as a useful tool into the realm of the spirit they grab this and they bring it over here thinking okay law is going to be more effective than grace what i really need are rules What I really need are clear boundaries. What I really need are consequences. And that's what you need too, because there's always going to be the implication. It's not just for me, (laughs) it's for you too, right? You wouldn't be doing those things if you just had a consequence. You wouldn't be doing those things if there wasn't a law. So they grab the law and they use it. They use its guilt, they use its shame, they use the pride that comes from. from from obeying, they use the, the sense of failure that comes from not obeying, and they attack their sin and they attack themselves and they attack others. They're still driven by their disordered desires. That need to be independent from God instead of humbly dependent on God. Their need to perform for God instead of rest in God. And 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 here's the thing, y'all, I'm gonna there is, I believe, a greater danger to religious sin than there is to indulgent sin. I think the slippery slope of performance is of greater danger because it is more deceptive. They're both dangerous. They both lead to separation from God. They both lead to destroyed lives. But the path of religious self-performance is more dangerous because I believe it is more deceptive. What ends up happening is people are afraid of the slippery slope of liberalism. They're they're afraid of the slippery slope of self-indulgence. They're afraid of the slippery slope of of people that are crossing lines, moral and theological lines, into where they're not supposed to go. And and as they're backing away from that dangerous slippery slope, they are sliding down into the pride of their own self-destruction. And I think that slope has swallowed just as many, if not more, religious people than the slope of sinful self-indulgence few things are more dangerous than obedience without love did you hear me I don't know that anything is more dangerous than obedience without love think about the older brother in our story who ended up at the party of grace The rebel son eventually found himself in the pigsty, came to himself and recognized the love of God. The older brother never got past his self-righteousness because he felt righteous not only in his own record but even judging his father for being so reckless with his love. Think about the Pharisee who comes to the temple to pray and while the tax collector is on his face simply saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's standing there saying, God, I thank you, I'm not him. Only one person walked away justified that day, and it wasn't the Pharisee. See, the, the, the rule keeper says, yeah, I'm obligated. To do what? Man, I am obligated to keep the rules. I am obligated to perform. I am obligated to measure up. And I'm obligated to compel others to do it too. Listen, you you cannot kill the flesh with the tools of the flesh. When you bring the law as a tool into the realm of the Spirit, all you do is empower and inflame the flesh. And you grieve the Spirit. Because the law was never given as a tool to correct your disordered desires. It was given as a tool to make them known and actually stir them up. And it will do the same thing in the life of a believer. You cannot overcome the flesh by using the law. And I think that's where I've often been I've I've just stood across from people and, and and they've they've watched people destroy their lives and they're like Steve you need to, to to you need you need to talk about rules man it's time to bring in the law I'm gonna tell you this is a hard truth but it's a truth if grace hasn't done it law's not going to improve it If it's not accomplished by grace you're not going to make it any better by introducing law you're going to make it worse the only thing that changes the human heart is love and if love doesn't do it nothing else can there's only one way to win this fight and that is to be led by the spirit take a look at verse 14 for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So I want you to see something here. Paul says that we're under obligation, and then he doesn't give us anything to do. Like, there's no command here. He doesn't say, you're under obligation, now go do this. He says, you're under obligation, let me remind you of this incredible truth. Right? That's all there are, no commands to be obeyed, just truths to be believed, trusted, and lived out. Our obligation to God isn't met by performing for God or trying to manipulate God through our good works. Our obligation to God is met in our relationship with God, in responding to God, in loving the God who loves us. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This is relational language. Yes, it means obedience, but obedience that flows from relationship not obedience outside of relationship. This is the way love works. Love obligates love. Y'all, think about it. What does it mean for me to be indebted to Lauren? Like, I owe Lauren a debt. We've been married for 32 years. It'll be 33 years in August. And I was a mess when we met. Right? I've said before, man, Jesus saved my soul, Lauren saved my life. And it's true. Like, like I was an absolute mess before I met that woman. And, 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 and I cannot tell you how indebted I am to her for the years and years and years of, of just faithful friendship and love and tolerance for my brokenness and, and meeting me in my pain. What does it mean for me to be indebted to Lauren? Does it mean that I owe her gifts that I owe her good works, that I owe her flowers? Would that pay the debt if I gave her flowers, and every time I did it, I took an Instagram photo of myself looking great? Flowers, perfect husband, hashtag, right? Is that, is that going to meet the debt? Does she want flowers, or does she want to be cherished? Cherished? Does she want gifts or does she want a heart that is absolutely broken in gratitude and love? The gifts must be an expression of the love or the gifts become themselves part of the offense. Somebody who tries to win love through performance violates the very terms of love. Love obligates love. The problem is we're broken, y'all we're broken. And I mean by that our flesh, these disordered desires. We, and part of that brokenness is we have a really, really hard time simply loving. It's hard for us to be loved. In fact, I think it's one of the greatest challenges we have in life. And we have a hard time loving. It's way easier to perform than it is to love. You know, working with, with the foster care system and, and hearing all of these stories of foster kids, some of them are incredibly wonderful stories. And there are some heartbreaking stories. Kids that come into homes, their new forever homes with foster parents who absolutely love them, but the kids have been so hurt that they can't trust the love. So they exist in a home filled with unconditional love with hearts that can't receive it. They're surrounded by the water of life and they can't drink it. They're constantly living in a need to perform, to be accepted, and fear of rejection. That's how we live our lives with God. We have such hard time simply receiving the unconditional love of God that we constantly think we have to earn it or we're not going to get it. I have to be worthy of it or I'll never experience it. I'm just this far at all times from being rejected. And maybe I already am. See, our problem isn't primarily with our behavior. Our problem is primarily with our ability to be freed in love. Because those who are freed in love respond to love. And those who respond in love walk in the Spirit. And those who walk in the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. Galatians five sixteen. 16. Um, walk in the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. It's not, it's just, a, that's a statement, not a command. Right, you walk in the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Why? Because when you're walking in the Spirit, your deepest desires are met. And when your deepest desires are met in the Spirit, the disordered desires can't deceive you into going down some other path. Robert Munz, who is a New Testament scholar and wrote a, a commentary on the book of Romans, said this specifically about verse 14 or 13, when we walk in fellowship with the indwelling Spirit, the desires of our lower nature are not met. For all practical purposes, they are put to death. It is only when we break fellowship with the Spirit that our sinful nature is able to successfully reassert its fraudulent claim on our lives. The key to freedom from what we were in constant reliance on is the active presence of the Spirit. When you are walking in the Spirit, you will put to death the desires of the flesh. Because the desires of the flesh only can take hold of a heart that is not broken and walking in humble responsiveness to the love of God. How do we live out our obligation? What does it mean to be obligated? It means to have broken hearts of humility and gratitude, growing in love for the God who loves us. It is the only path forward to living out this reality and this truth. Because when we are walking in the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. We will experience the change we crave. We will experience the victory we can't accomplish on our own. We will see God doing in us what we could never do for God. Love obligates love. And what grace began only grace can finish. I'm going to close this word of prayer. That's where we're going to stop for today. Uh, we're going to share communion, and um, and then we're going to sing. We're pray for us. Father, we thank you that um, you have given us this gift of grace, that you have freed us into um, not only the positional righteousness of Christ, but into this active relationship with the Spirit. That you have drawn near to us in love, that you have in fact taken up residence within us, not to be a watchdog, not to be a policeman, not to to recreate the experience of law, but to invite us to the table of grace, to drink at the fountain of your love, to, to be brought into the warm embrace of your acceptance. Lord, will you awaken our hearts to that love, to respond to that love, to celebrate that love, to feast on that love, for your glory and our good. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen.